Chapter Three of Book One of the Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Chapter Three of Book One. That the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. As it is the power of exchanging that gives occasion to the division of labor, so the extent of this division must always be limited by the extent of that power, or, in other words, by the extent of the market. When the market is very small, no person can have any encouragement to dedicate himself entirely to one employment, for want of the power to exchange all that surplus part of the produce of his own labor, which is over and above his own consumption, for such parts of the produce of other men's labor as he has occasion for. There are some sorts of industry, even of the lowest kind, which can be carried on nowhere but in a great town. A porter, for example, can find employment and subsistence in no other place. A village is by much too narrow a sphere for him. Even an ordinary market town is scarce large enough to afford him constant occupation. In the lone houses and very small villages which are scattered about in so desert a country as the highlands of Scotland, Every farmer must be butcher, baker, and brewer for his own family. In such situations we can scarce expect to find even a smith, a carpenter, or a mason within less than twenty miles of another of the same trade. The scattered families that live at eight or ten miles distance from the nearest of them must learn to perform themselves a great number of little pieces of work, for which, in more populous countries, they would call in the assistance of those workmen. Country workmen are almost everywhere obliged to apply themselves to all the different branches of industry that have so much affinity to one another as to be employed about the same sort of materials. A country carpenter deals in every sort of work that is made of wood, a country smith in every sort of work that is made of iron. The former is not only a carpenter, but a joiner, a cabinet maker, and even a carver in wood, as well as a wheelwright, a plowright, a cart, and wagon maker. The employments of the latter are still more various. It is impossible that there should be such a trade as even that of a nailer in the remote and inland parts of the highlands of Scotland. Such a workman at the rate of a thousand nails a day and three hundred working days in the year will make three hundred thousand nails in the year. But in such a situation it would be impossible to dispose of one thousand, that is, of one day's work in the year. As by means of water carriage, a more extensive market is open to every sort of industry than what land carriage alone can afford it. So it is upon the sea coast and along the banks of navigable rivers that industry of every kind naturally begins to subdivide and improve itself, and it is frequently not till a long time after that those improvements extend themselves to the inland parts of the country. A broad-wheeled wagon, attended by two men, and drawn by eight horses, in about six weeks' time, carries and brings back, between London and Edinburgh, near four-ton weight of goods. In about the same time, a ship, navigated by six or eight men, and sailing between the ports of London and Leith, frequently carries and brings back two hundred-ton weight of goods. Six or eight men, therefore, by the help of water carriage, can carry and bring back in the same time the same quantity of goods between London and Edinburgh as fifty broad-wheeled wagons, attended by a hundred men, and drawn by four hundred horses. Upon two hundred tons of goods, therefore, carried by the cheapest land carriage from London to Edinburgh, there must be charged the maintenance of a hundred men for three weeks, and both the maintenance and what is nearly equal to maintenance the wear and tear of four hundred horses, as well as of fifty great wagons. 
whereas upon the same quantity of goods carried by water there is to be charged only the maintenance of six or eight men and the wear and tear of a ship of two hundred tons burthen together with the value of the superior risk or the difference of the insurance between land and water carriage were there no other communication between those two places therefore but by land carriage as no goods could be transported from the one to the other except such whose price was very considerable in proportion to their weight they could carry on but a small part of that commerce which at present subsists between them and consequently could give but a small part of that encouragement which they at present mutually afford to each other's industry there could be little or no commerce of any kind between the distant parts of the world what goods could bear the expense of land carriage between london and calcutta or if there were any so precious as to be able to support this expense with what safety could they be transported through the territories of so many barbarous nations those two cities however at present carry on a very considerable commerce with each other and by mutually affording a market give a good deal of encouragement to each other's industry since such therefore are the advantages of water carriage it is natural that the first improvements of art and industry should be made where this conveniency opens the whole world for a market to the produce of every sort of labour and that they should always be much later in extending themselves into the inland parts of the country the inland parts of the country can for a long time have no other market for the greater part of their goods but the country which lies round about them and separates them from the sea-coast and the great navigable rivers the extent of the market therefore must for a long time be in proportion to the riches and populousness of that country and consequently their improvement must always be posterior to the improvement of that country in our north american colonies the plantations have constantly followed either the sea-coast or the banks of the navigable rivers and have scarce anywhere extended themselves to any considerable difference from both the nations that according to the best authenticated history appear to have been first civilized were those that dwelt round the coast of the mediterranean sea that sea by far the greatest inlet that is known in the world having no tides nor consequently any waves except such as are caused by the wind only was by the smoothness of its surface as well as by the multitude of its islands and the proximity of its neighboring shores extremely favorable to the infant navigation of the world when from their ignorance of the compass men were afraid to quit the view of the coast and from the imperfection of the art of shipbuilding to abandon themselves to the boisterous waves of the ocean to pass beyond the pillars of hercules that is to sail out of the straits of gibraltar was in the ancient world long considered as a most wonderful and dangerous exploit of navigation it was late before even the phoenicians and carthaginians the most skilful navigators and shipbuilders of those times attempted it and they were for a long time the only nations that did attempt it of all the countries on the coast of the mediterranean sea egypt seems to have been the first in which either agriculture or manufactures were cultivated and improved to any considerable degree upper egypt extends itself nowhere above a few miles from the nile and in lower egypt that great river breaks itself into many different canals which with the assistance of a little art seem to have afforded a communication by water carriage not only between all the great towns but between all the considerable villages and even to many farmhouses in the country nearly in the same manner as the rhine and the mace do in holland at present the extent and easiness of this inland navigation was probably one of the principal causes of the early improvement of egypt the improvements in agriculture and manufactures seem likewise to have been of very great antiquity in the provinces of bengal in the east indies and in some of the eastern provinces of china 
though the great extent of this antiquity is not authenticated by any histories of whose authority we, in this part of the world, are well assured. In Bengal, the Ganges, and several other great rivers, form a great number of navigable canals, in the same manner as the Nile does in Egypt. In the eastern provinces of China, too, several great rivers form, by their different branches, a multitude of canals, and, by communicating with one another, afford an inland navigation much more extensive than that either of the Nile or the Ganges, or perhaps than both of them put together. It is remarkable that neither the ancient Egyptians, nor the Indians, nor the Chinese encouraged foreign commerce, but seem all to have derived their great opulence from this inland navigation. All the inland parts of Africa, and all that part of Asia which lies any considerable way north of the Yuxin and Caspian Seas, the ancient Scythia, the modern Tartary and Siberia, seem in all ages of the world to have been in the same barbarous and uncivilized state in which we find them at present. The Sea of Tartary is the frozen ocean, which admits of no navigation, and though some of the greatest rivers in the world run through that country, they are at too great a distance from one another to carry commerce and communication through the greater part of it. There are in Africa none of those great inlets, such as the Baltic and Adriatic seas in Europe, the Mediterranean and Yuxin seas in both Europe and Asia, and the gulfs of Arabia, Persia, India, Bengal, and Siam in Asia, to carry maritime commerce into the interior parts of that great continent and the great rivers of Africa are at too great a distance from one another to give occasion to any considerable inland navigation. The commerce, besides, which any nation can carry on by means of a river, which does not break itself into any great number of branches or canals, and which runs into another territory before it reaches the sea, can never be very considerable, because it is always in the power of the nations who possess that other territory to obstruct the communication between the upper country and the sea. The navigation of the Danube is of very little use to the different states of Bavaria, Austria, and Hungary, in comparison of what it would be if any of them possessed the whole of its course, till it falls into the Black Sea. End of Book 1, Chapter 3